The meaning of the word samsara, which rises a lot in the teachings of the Buddha, means perpetual wandering through all the different realms of existence. It means this process of continual change. You can get a sense of the meaning of this word, being on retreat, and watching the ceaseless, momentary arising and passing of different experiences according to conditions. You see it hour after hour throughout the day, constantly arising and passing phenomena. This process of change, which goes on ceaselessly, in it there is no stopping, and no resting, and no peace, because of the continual arising of phenomena and disappearance of phenomena, moment after moment. Just reflect on what any particular sitting is like, or walking is like, or day is like. Buddha's understanding of this process of ceaseless change, arising and passing in the moment, was very large. He had this <laughs> tremendously expansive vision of samsara. So not only is it what is happening within this mind and body, <clears throat> or within this life, <clears throat> but within lifetime after lifetime, through all the different planes of existence. We talked about the 31 different planes of existence. Each one, each set of this being a world system, and countless numbers of world systems. So the whole scope of samsara is so huge. It covers enormous ranges of time. In all the vastness of this samsara, <clears throat> there are three outstanding or salient features or characteristics. Three things which stand out in whichever realm, whichever time frame we look at. And these are the facts of birth, of decay and of death. We see that everything in our lives, every experience, our life itself, and everything that arises within it, is characterized by a birth, the experience, a maturation and decay, and death. And our whole lives are conditioned by the inevitability of these three facts. They condition and color every part of our experience, <clears throat> our hopes and our aspirations and our fears. They color and condition our ideas of suffering, our ideas of happiness. When we look at any time frame, whether 
It's mahakalpas, you know, or lifetimes, or a single lifetime, or a year, or a three-month retreat, or a day, or a moment, whichever range we're looking at, we can see and we can understand the power of birth, decay, and death. That is what is happening, moment after moment. So then the question arises, what is it that we are doing with our lives? What actually is of value? If everything in the vastness of samsara is characterized by birth, decay, and death, a meaningful question for us is what are we doing? Now, where are we going? What are we developing? We may be looking in our lives for a sense of completion, or a sense of wholeness, or a sense of fulfillment. But are we looking for that fulfillment in a place that can actually give it to us? Or are we looking for it in something which is also subject to birth, decay, and death? One of the things that we can discover, and we do discover through this practice of awareness, is that this whole realm of samsara is just an endless process of momentary change. But there is nothing fixed, nothing solid, nothing to hold on to. It's said that Buddhas arise in the world for a very specific purpose. But they arise in the world in order to discover the mystery of this process, in order to discover what fuels this samsaric wheel, what keeps it going. What is this mystery of birth and death? And is there actually a place of freedom in it? Out of the great awakening of the Buddha, out of his opening to an understanding of how samsara keeps rolling, what keeps fueling it, he discovered three interdependent cycles. And each one of these cycles conditions the next, and it keeps samsara revolving. The first of these is called the cycle of kilesa, or the cycle of defilements. Now, it's important to understand the flavor of this word, because there's a connotation in English which really causes difficulty for us. Often, when we talk of defilement or think of defilement, we tend to personalize it. We tend to judge ourselves then as being defiled. And so it just feeds into the self-condemnation, into the unworthiness. And in the teachings, 
The word kilesa does not have this import. It's not that kilesa, or what we call defilements, make us bad. Rather, they make us suffer. They make the mind suffer. They torment the mind. They're impersonal. They don't belong to anybody. They're simply forces in the mind, factors in the mind, which have the power to torment the mind. They cause trouble. They keep the mind from being peaceful. What's quite an interesting part of our conditioning is to see how often we justify the presence of these kilesas in the mind. There's the phenomenon of righteous anger. Now, something happens and anger fills the mind, and there's that time, well, I have a right to be angry. I should be angry at that. Or maybe there's the sense of kind of justified jealousy. You know, there's a certain situation in our lives and we feel very jealous. Well, I should feel jealous. What are we doing? We're holding on to this hot burning coal, this factor which is causing suffering. Well, I should be holding on to this. That's very different than the sense of understanding that there are certain conditions which cause the anger to arise or cause the jealousy to arise. It's not to deny the situation, but rather it's to see that these kilesas in the mind that arise actually are our own responsibility and that we are the ones who are suffering. The first kilesa to understand, the root one, which the Buddha spoke of as just being at the very core, the very center of this samsaric wheel, is the kilesa of ignorance. Ignorance is a tremendously powerful force in the mind. It's really what keeps this whole samsaric wheel rolling. And so it's necessary in our process of awakening to begin to see how ignorance functions so we can recognize it. There are different kinds of ignorance. There's the ignorance of not knowing something. And we see this in a worldly sense very easily. There's a lot about almost everything that one doesn't know about, you know, whether it's science or art or music or whatever. It's just outside of our knowledge. It's fairly obvious. There's an ignorance not only of worldly knowledge, there's an ignorance of Dhamma knowledge. When people don't know about the law of karma. They don't know about this law of cause and effect. So are ignorant of it. There's also the kind of not knowing where we're simply not present for what is happening. Every time we're lost in a thought and we don't know it, we don't know we're lost, we don't know we're thinking, 
that's a kind of ignorance because we don't know what's present. We don't know what is actually happening. And when you begin to see how much of the time we may spend lost in thoughts or daydreams or fantasies, what's happening at that time is the functioning of this particular gilesa, the gilesa of ignorance. Because we're not knowing what is actually there. Well, this is the first kind of ignorance, of not knowing something. There's a second kind of ignorance, which is actually more difficult to uproot. It's a more subtle kind. And that is, we know something, but we know it incorrectly. We have an incorrect knowledge about things. About 14 years in teaching, I've used the example countless times of the process of the meditation being like focusing the mind until it's like we're looking at things through an electron microscope, that level. Just, just this year, somebody came up to me and said, you don't actually look through an electron microscope. <laughs> That's not what an electron microscope is like. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> Let go of that image. <laughs> I'm still not quite sure how they work. <laughs> but I just had this idea that you see things that are very subtle. There's a more profound uh, examples of this not, of this knowing something but knowing it incorrectly. There are some very striking examples in our lives of this which have a profound effect on our life choices. One of the things that we have an incorrect view about is when we take what is impermanent to be permanent. When we really have the sense or the feeling that something is lasting. Now this doesn't mean that we take what is impermanent to be permanent on an intellectual level. Because we probably would all know intellectually that things are changing. But so many times we are not actually knowing it in the moment. You know, how many times do we get lost in a certain kind of mood or emotion and really caught in it, losing the sense that it is really just a passing phenomenon, where we invest so much reality in it and it conditions so much of our lives because we've forgotten or we see incorrectly. We're not knowing from our heart, not, not, not necessarily from our intellect, but knowing deeply that this is just a changing, passing phenomenon. And so somehow we have to integrate that seeing, come out of that kind of ignorance. Something else we take incorrectly in our lives perhaps even more massively than the first, is we take 
what is deeply and genuinely unsatisfying to be satisfying, to be the actual source of our happiness. What is it that's deeply unsatisfying? Everything. Precisely because everything is arising and dissolving every moment. How could it be satisfying? And we make this mistake, we're influenced by ignorance, when we take what is not self to be who we are. When we take what is not self to be self. And as you have seen so often during these months, the mind is conditioned by this ignorance so much of the time. When we identify with our thoughts, with our feelings, with sensations, with knowing, that ignorance is so strong in the mind, taking experience to be self, to be I. We can begin to see, then, the awesome power of this ignorance, where we're mistaking the very fundamental characteristics of, the, of experience. We're mistaking it. We're seeing it in a wrong way. And so much of the world is revolving around this incorrect seeing of things. The beginning of our awakening, the real beginning of enlightenment, is when we get a sense of the scope of the ignorance. When we begin to get some feel, both for everything we don't know, and we begin to realize that we don't know a lot, and that much of what we do know is incorrect. Like when we can somehow loosen ourselves from our tightly held view of how things are, and sometimes in our lives different things shake us up or make us begin to get a sense of this, that actually is the beginning. Because as long as we're just lost in this ignorance and not seeing it, there's no hope of freeing ourselves from it. Often the beginning of this journey from ignorance really into the unknown, it often starts with thinking or reflecting. Now especially, certainly in the Western intellectual tradition, but also in the Orient as well, there are these great philosophical systems and traditions of people applying their intellect, which can be very great, to try to understand, to try to work out how things actually are. Now, 
still at university, you know, and studying philosophy, what motivated me during those years to study philosophy was this strong desire to understand things. And at that time, that seemed a way to do it. But it took somewhat less than four years to realize that it didn't quite do it. You know, that it was interesting, and sometimes there was some very profound thought, but somehow it didn't quite reach far enough. It didn't reach that place of transformation, transformation of being, transformation of consciousness. Sometimes we see that the intellect doesn't quite reach it, and we start relying on our feelings as a way of understanding, as a way of coming out of this ignorance. It's the sense that if something feels good to us, then it must be good. In that situation, our feelings become the arbiter of our wisdom. But through some experience and investigation, we see that feeling also, like the intellect, is not a good measure. It's not a reliable one. Because many things may feel good to us and are actually unwholesome. They may actually have harmful results in the future. It feels good in the moment, but the consequences of it may not be good. Or it may feel bad in the moment. There may be real suffering in the moment, and it actually have very beneficial consequences. We see the limitation of both intellect and feeling very clearly in the practice. Now we see how there can be some kind of insight, and then the mind begins to reflect on the insight and can get lost in the reflections, the thoughts are not the insight. The thoughts are not that moment of clear seeing of something. It's the conceptual mind reflecting on the experience. And what happens in the practice and in the world outside is that we actually lose touch with the actuality of what's happening because we're lost in thinking about it. In terms of the meditation practice, these kinds of reflections can actually be the cause of a lot of loss of momentum. We see the limitation of feelings in practice as being a measure of our understanding. Very commonly, we may feel terrible. You know, you've had probably much experience over these last months where it's hard and it's difficult and there's suffering and there's all kinds of awful things going on. And yet in terms of the development of understanding and wisdom, it's actually quite good. What's important to understand is that the range of intellect and the range of feeling does not extend to that place of overcoming ignorance. We need to find another way to do it. 
We need actually to train the heart, not simply follow it. We need to train the mind, not simply get lost in its reflections about things. The Buddha discovered and opened up to a whole new way of understanding, not through the intellect, not through feelings. but through a very deep and sustained observing power of the mind. That becomes the vehicle for overcoming this kilesa of ignorance. When we do this, when we cultivate this strong and sustained power of observation, what we discover is that all of experience that is happening is the arising and passing of mental physical phenomena in Pali of Nama Rupa. And we see over and over, repeatedly, we see this Nama Rupa, mental physical phenomena, just arising in the moment and changing, arising, changing, arising, changing, continuously, without stopping. Sometimes it's pleasant, sometimes it's unpleasant. But it is always essentially unsatisfying. And it's always essentially insubstantial. There is nothing to grab hold of because of the momentariness of it. In each moment, we're talking about very microscopic moments, In each moment, there is the arising of consciousness with one of the six sense objects. And this is what's happening very, very rapidly, continuously. In talking of this, it's not so much to consider it as some theory. It's really a pointing to what we all know from our own power of observation. We've been sitting now for a couple of months just watching this process. In each moment, there's a knowing and an object of one of the six sense doors. Moment after moment after moment without stop. As the mindfulness of this process becomes more powerful, we begin to see these three characteristics of impermanence, of unsatisfying quality, and of selflessness. Until we see this, until we understand this, until our awareness of this becomes very strong, the power of ignorance dominates the mind. Because of not seeing this clearly, because of not observing it accurately. The mind takes objects and takes experiences to be essentially desirable. So what is happening is there's this continual arising and passing away of experience through the six sense doors. And if ignorance is present in the mind, 
we keep taking delight in or wanting or enjoying more and more of these experiences. The problem is they don't really fulfill us because they're continually falling away, they're continually passing away. They're not what we most deeply want. The power of ignorance makes us take the truth of dukkha for actually being the path of happiness. This is a basic mistake. You know, we're taking what is actually the path of dukkha and we're seeing it because of ignorance in the mind. We're seeing it to be the path of happiness. And so what happens in our lives is this the state of disappointment, the state of non-fulfillment. Just to illustrate the differences of these perspectives, Yogi came in today for an interview and told me a story of a Burmese monk living in the forest doing the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. And really just seeing the body in that particular way. And somebody came to visit him, kind of all dressed up in their finery, you know, and clearly delighting in you know, that kind of pleasure. And the monk commented, Oh, what nice bandages you're wearing. <laughs> These are two very different perspectives on what actually is the cause of happiness you know, and what is the cause of suffering. We are on the wrong path of happiness when we're seeking it in objects which are arising through the six sense doors. Because they cannot give what they promise. They cannot fulfill the promise of happiness. What is meant by the sense objects? Sometimes when we speak of you know, enjoying sense pleasures, people imagine this to be you know, the tremendous great delights of sense enjoyment. And maybe in some way there's the understanding that as enjoyable as they might be, they are not really going to make us lastingly happy. But the Buddha meant something more, something much more radical than that. He wasn't talking only about these great sensual delights as being essentially unsatisfying. He was talking about every object arising through the sense doors, which is everything. 
If we could get that fully, just in a moment, can you see the possibility just in that moment of the mind letting go, the mind becoming free? The implication of this is not that we don't act in the world, and it's not that we don't enjoy things. It's not that we have to go off and be a hermit you know, in some cave. What it does mean is that we begin to view things, view experience, view this momentary process of change from a different perspective. The depth of the Buddhist teaching is so profound because it makes us look at this endless process of change from a different place. So instead of reaching out, instead of toppling forward into the next experience, we actually can settle back without that sense of reaching, of hungering. Sort of like being in a desert you know, and seeing a mirage of water. That mirage does not have the capacity to quench our thirst. But if we keep going after it, if we keep going after the mirage, there's this endless frustration. There's the endless thirst. As long as ignorance, this force of ignorance, rules the mind, and we don't see the changing, unsatisfying, selfless nature of things, so long does the mind keep reaching out for new experiences. And so we can see how the galesa of ignorance actually conditions the galesa of craving because of not seeing correctly. The mind continually is reaching for the next pleasant experience. We can see it. We can see it on retreat. We can see it in our lives. It's this attitude of always looking to the next moment, to the next experience, to the next relationship, to the next vacation to the next possession. It's like we're always looking forward to something to make us happy, to make us feel good. What's really happening is a toppling forward into the next insubstantial moment. And how much of our lives is spent with this sense of looking forward to, toppling forward into. Ignorance is what conditions this craving in the mind. Ignorance also conditions wrong view, this view of self. It creates this idea of I, of self, of mine. I'm knowing, I'm experiencing.
I'd like to just take a little diversion here because there's a very interesting way of understanding how ignorance actually conditions this view of self. You can see it quite easily with regard to craving. And when we don't see the impermanence and the unsatisfying nature of things, and there's a pleasant feeling, we see when that ignorance is present, we keep going after the pleasant feeling. We keep craving it. But how does ignorance create wrong view, create this idea of self? This might take some careful attention, but it's, to my mind, quite an interesting process that happens in the mind. When ignorance is strong, and again, ignorance means not seeing the three characteristics, what happens is there is an imbalance between the factor of perception and the factor of mindfulness. Perception becomes stronger than mindfulness. Perception is that factor which recognizes the object. Perception sees the distinguishing characteristics and remembers it. And so it's really perception which recognizes man or woman or car or house or red or yellow. It picks out the distinguishing mark and holds it in memory. But perception does not have the power to see the true nature of things. What it's doing is recognizing the appearance of things. And so what happens when perception is stronger than mindfulness is that the mind identifies with this concept that we have of things. It solidifies that and is not seeing, through mindfulness, the underlying nature. Let's give you an example. Another common example is how we relate to different people in our lives. You know, we think of them or we see them and there's that immediate perception, recognize them as being a particular person, and then all the associations we have, all the concepts we have about who that person actually is. And so what we're doing in that moment, because the perception is stronger than the mindfulness, is we are creating a box of all of our ideas and opinions and remembrances of that person and sticking that person in the box. Oh yes, I know who that is. And so we're not really mindful in the moment. We're not really present for what is actually there. We're seeing it all through the veil of our concepts. Oh yeah, I know you. You know how deadening that is. Here's another little example of perception being stronger than mindfulness. This happened when I was on retreat in Australia and I was doing walking meditation out where the cars were parked and there were some birds on the grass and they were hopping underneath the cars and one was going right underneath the chrome bumper. And it was hopping and then it kind of looked up 
and it saw another bird. It was really its reflection in the bumper. And it flew into it. And it hit its head on the bumper and fell back down to the ground. It looked up again, saw the bird, flew into it, got knocked down, back to the ground. This happened many times. That's perception being stronger than mindfulness. That bird was not noting seeing, seeing, seeing. There was this strong recognition. Oh, bird. And I don't know whether was, this was a love dance or an attack. But that's what's happening to us continually. We're hitting ourselves on this bumper of life and getting knocked back down to the ground. The way that self is created, is conditioned, is when the perception is stronger than the mindfulness. And so we create this sense of recognition. You look in the mirror like Nasruddin, and you're on, oh, that's me. That's who I am. And there's this strong sense of self, you know, just looks like me. Or there's a thought, and we get lost in the thought, we get lost in the content through memory, through the power of perception, and we solidify a whole world. How many times in the sitting and in the walking meditation, you know, you're walking back and forth, and a world is created, you know, of people and situations and reactions and dramas and all kinds of things. Then five steps later, you're back touching the ground, touching the floor. And you see that all of that was just mind created. Okay, all of this is just <laughs> like a PS. But it's interesting. It's just interesting to watch the actual process in the mind of how this sense of self, how the sense of I is actually conditioned. It's when perception is stronger than mindfulness. That happens when ignorance is in the mind. Okay, from ignorance comes the craving, from ignorance comes wrong view. These two together, craving and wrong view, lead to the third defilement, the third kilesa of grasping. When there's a strong sense of I combined with craving, then we hold on tight. We hold on to the sense of self. We hold on to objects. We hold on to the body. There's this real force of clinging in the mind. This is the first cycle which keeps samsara spinning. The round of defilements, the round of gilesis, ignorance, Craving and wrong view, grasping. It's this cycle which conditions the next round, which is the round of action. Because of the force of craving and clinging in the mind, we do all sorts of acts. Some of them are wholesome, some are unwholesome. We can see this in our lives, you know, all of the major life decisions that we make. It's because of some kind of desire in the mind, some kind of wanting. 
or some kind of wrong view. And you can watch it in the countless actions through the day. Little things, you know, to little changes of posture. The smallest things are motivated by this force. There is one factor which makes this round of action so potent. It's not that there's an action and it's lost to the universe. Understanding this round of action is so important because in each action there is a seed. And this seed has tremendous power. It has the power to bring about results. It has the power to condition rebirth. And the seed in each of these actions is the seed of intention or volition. This is what the Buddha called karma. And each seed of each action has the power to bear many fruits. Just think for a moment. You take the seed of some great, huge tree. It's amazing to think that in that tiny little thing is the potential for a great tree. Or the embryo, the seed, just the sperm and the egg uniting. It's amazing that we're the result. It's not insignificant. You know, these tiny, tiny moments have such tremendous potential in them. Each seed bears not only one fruit, but bears countless fruits. And so it's to see that this cycle of action, which is conditioned by the cycle of kilesa, is very powerful in understanding this wheel of samsara. That's what's keeping it going. If we respect this, if we really see this, it can be an impetus to discriminating between wholesome and unwholesome acts because we understand the power of acts. The Buddha laid out very clearly. I mean, he really, he made it easy for us. And we talked about it throughout the retreat, and particularly earlier on, the ten unwholesome actions, the ten wholesome ones. And it's not only sort of taking it on the word of the Buddha. We know this is not esoteric knowledge. We know it in ourselves. The three unskillful actions of body, of killing and stealing and sexual misconduct, sexual conduct that causes harm. The four unwholesome actions of speech, of lying, of backbiting, and of really of seeing that language which we're using, that speech which we're using, to cause divisiveness, to cause division. It happens a lot because we often don't pay attention to the kind of speech we use. Or harsh speech, or useless talk, 
All of these are unwholesome actions. They're seeds which bear particular kinds of fruits, of suffering. And three unwholesome acts of mind. Of covetousness, and of ill will, and of wrong view. So when we know this, and reflect upon it in ourselves, it can be an impetus to really be watchful, to take care, to know that these acts have power. Likewise with the ten wholesome acts, which are just the opposite of these. Not killing and not stealing, etc. So this is the cycle of action. Because of kilesa, because of ignorance which leads to craving, and ignorance leads to wrong view, there's grasping. Because of the grasping conditions the cycle of action. The cycle of action, because of the power of these seeds of intention, leads to the third cycle of karmic results. What are the karmic results? Everything we experience through the six sense doors. The pleasant experiences, the unpleasant experiences. From being unmindful of what's arising through the six sense doors, conditioned the round of gilesas. The round of gilesas conditions the round of action. The round of action conditions the round of result. How long have we been spinning and revolving on this wheel through these cycles? The enlightenment of the Buddha, the great power of his wisdom, was that he was able to see this. He was able to uncover it, to see how it was all working, and to see the way we can step out of these cycles, to step off of the wheel of this conditioning. In every moment of mindfulness, in every moment of noting clearly, there is no ignorance in the mind. Each moment of mindfulness is tremendously powerful in freeing us from the grip of ignorance. Through being mindful, moment after moment, we begin to see the three characteristics. We see the impermanence and the unsatisfying nature. We see the selflessness. You know, in these months of practice, how many thoughts have you seen disappear? How many sensations? How many emotions? Are you convinced that things change? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> and we forget, and we have to keep practicing in this repeated observation. But we know it. You know, we know it for ourselves, not as some theory, or not because somebody says it. We know it because we've been observing so carefully that everything that arises is simply passing away moment after moment. This wisdom dispels the power, the, the gilesa of ignorance. When there's no ignorance, there's no clinging or attachment to objects. In each moment of mindfulness, we're deconditioning the cycle of defilement. 
the cycle of kilesa. We're deconditioning the cycle of action based on kilesa. We're deconditioning the cycle of karmic results. And so what we're doing in the practice, and I hope you have a sense of understanding that what you're doing moment to moment, in each moment of awareness, is something that has these tremendous ramifications. Earlier on in the retreat, I spoke a little bit of this science of chaos and how one of the principles of it was that small input in a system can have huge output. This is such, uh, so reflective of how this wheel of samsara is working. And it works both ways. The input of ignorance, a little ignorance, can have a tremendous result. And a little mindfulness can have the tremendous result of freedom. If we can get some sense of these interdependent cycles, cycles of kilesa, conditioning action, action, conditioning result, results, conditioning nukilesas, then if we see that we break the cycle in every moment of mindfulness, in every moment of noting, then it's simply a question of walking along that path. Very simply, very systematically, moments of mindfulness, one after the other, until we come to that place where we can really utter our great song of awakening, as so many beings have done. Done is what had to be done. Achieved is the end of craving. Mind attained to freedom. This is what our practice is about. This is what we're doing. We're actually doing, not reflecting about it. This is the transformation that is taking place. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.